Transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Between Blythe and Needles on US 95, you'll find a desert outpost called Vidal. It's just north of the San Bernardino and Riverside County line. And if you take Highway 62 out of Joshua Tree all the way to the Colorado River, when you cross Highway 95, you're in Vidal Junction. You'll find a gas station or two, one of those California agricultural inspection stations where they ask if you're bringing any vegetables from Arizona or wherever, if you're driving in from the east. south on US 95 just a few miles 4 miles then right past the railroad tracks you'll see a dirt street Old Parker Road and just a few lots to the east you'll find a neat little white and blue house with a shady porch and an interesting historical marker outside put up by Eclampus Vitus as per usual The marker explains that this was the home of Wyatt Earp, legendary lawman and gunslinger and gambler of the Old West. Wyatt Earp and his third wife, Josephine Sarah, known as Sadie, lived here in their only permanent home, the only home they owned from 1925 to 1928. The Earps had the house moved down from its original location up the highway in Calzona, where it was the only surviving building after the rest of Calzona burnt to the ground. Wyatt Earp died at age 80 at his rented house in Los Angeles early in 1929, the year the Great Depression began. Because Sadie was Jewish and had a cemetery plot up in Colma, the city of the dead, she buried his cremated remains there and joined him in 1944. Wyatt Earp spent a lot of time in Los Angeles with the cowboy actors and the horseback stunt riders. Tom Mix and Douglas Fairbanks, he knew everybody. He spent time mining in the Klondike with his friend Jack London and was frequently invited to the movie sets run by his good friend John Ford. But for whatever reason, this living legend of the Old West could not get a movie deal. Could not get his story on the screen, not in his life anyway. He was still active, still mining his claims outside of Vidal where if you look real close, you can see the speck of a settlement named for him. Earp, California, where he built a rough cabin that no longer stands. He was a deputy sheriff of San Bernardino County, too. Honorary deputy, at least. And in the 1910s, he did a lot of freelance work for the Los Angeles police. He was a bounty hunter. He is remembered for capably capturing various wanted men in Mexico and beyond. 
He got involved with a mining war up around Trona, too, and wherever he went, people would argue with him about his handling of the OK Corral shootout, which he defended as the best he could do in a tough situation. And they'd also complain to him about famous boxing matches that he had refereed to their financial disadvantage. In the Depression years after Wyatt Earp passed on, Vidal and his namesake village of Earp became part of a busy and violent labor camp where thousands of men labored on public works projects such as the aqueduct and the highways. Saloons and packaged liquor stores lined the roads. The Wobblies came to town in great numbers. Industrial workers of the world, and you can imagine Wyatt Earp would have enjoyed seeing his quiet desert home as part of yet another western boomtown, with all the drinking and gambling and fighting that comes with it. But the quiet times returned to this hot, flat corner of the desert until the 1960s. That's when an outlaw branch of Lester Crowley's OTO Lodge took up residence. OTO means Ordo Templi Orientis, a sort of Rosicrucian Masonic occult organization that originated in Austria around 1905. In the same year the Wobblies formed, for what it's worth. Crowley was a wanderer, a mountaineer, a writer, and a poet born a little too late for the Romantic era, the time of William Blake and Mary Shelley. In 1910, he took charge of OTO in the British Isles and made the organization his own. Crowley was fond of attention and he loved ceremony. This order of the Eastern Templars never involved more than a few hundred people and often no more than a few dozen. But they were often people who would leave a mark upon the world. The California chapter was based in Pasadena, the Agape Lodge. They performed the Gnostic Mass as required, the Mass itself based on the beautiful ceremony of the Eastern Orthodox Church Mass which Crowley enjoyed while traveling in Russia. And they had some interesting members there in Pasadena. People you've heard about before, L. Ron Hubbard and Jet Propulsion Lab founder Jack Parsons and Marjorie Cameron. Jack Parsons was corresponding with Crowley in 1946 when Parsons and Hubbard were performing their great desert ritual, the Babylon Working. Crowley warned Parsons to be careful with this stuff, even as Crowley made no secret of his distaste for Parsons and Hubbard and the whole Pasadena crew. Still, Parsons was into something heavy. Alistair Crowley had appointed himself prophet of the new age, and he spoke at length to an entity that he described as having a large gray head, just like our mythological E.T. Greys. That entity dictated a book to Crowley in Egypt, the Book of the Law. Crowley said he would usher in the Eon of Horus. 
but Jack Parsons, this vulgar American working in his Southern California garage, he was the one who would usher in the space age. And in that Babylon working, it is said something dropped into our reality, something we've never been able to send back. Crowley himself was dead a few months later. And by 1952, Parsons was dead too. Blown to bits in an explosion. The Agape Lodge, the only OTO lodge remaining after World War II, had been housed in those years within Jack Parsons' mansion at 1003 South Orange Avenue in Pasadena. At its peak, the house was filled with artists and bohemians and science fiction writers and people on the very edge of science. People such as Robert Kornick, one of the handful of Manhattan Project physicists who unleashed the atomic bomb. He lived there, in fact, he was a dear friend to Jack Parsons. The Agape Lodge faded when Parsons had to sell the big craftsman house. L. Ron Hubbard had run away with all of Parsons' money. For about a decade, the OTO was quiet. Beginning quietly in 1962, a member of that Pasadena Lodge named Roy Burlingame began to initiate new members and formed the outlaw OTO congregation he called the Solar Lodge. Ritual magic was back in California just in time for the age of Aquarius. Within a few years, this new organization, this illegal spawn of Crowley's AA, Astrum Argentium, was very visible in both Los Angeles and then in the deserts to the east. Right there across the street from USC, the Solar Lodge operated a magic bookstore called the Eye of Horus. It's where you could buy all kinds of rare books about ceremonial magic, especially books by Aleister Crowley. Los Angeles had long had the best occult bookstores, and while Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page is an Englishman like his hero Crowley, Jimmy Page bought his Crowley books in Los Angeles. In the book Trampled Underfoot, it's revealed that Jimmy Page was not really a scholar of the stuff. He was showing off his book collection one time to a guest who happened to be Jewish, and the guest knew how to read Hebrew. When this guest began reading the Hebrew letters and words in a magic book, Jimmy Page was apparently deeply rattled. He had no idea. Well, the Solar Lodge had the good stuff, the rare stuff, letters and drawings and charts. And as the lodge expanded, it was decided to purchase some desert property for month-long rituals in the middle of nowhere. In the few years between its founding in 1965 and the events of 1969, the lodge bought up real estate in and around Vidal, California. They ran the gas station and Atlantic Richfield franchise, and they owned the motel and the restaurant and the bar. They had another Eye of Horus bookstore in Blythe, of all places. They had all kinds of people out there working for nothing in the desert sun, seekers and searchers, lost souls. And they had a storage building that contained the rarest of Crowley papers and books. 
Here in the desert far from prying eyes, the members of the Solar Lodge were building their Ark, their Ark of the Covenant. building with the rare papers and the goats that a six-year-old child named Saul Gibbons accidentally set the place on fire. The initiates were furious. They burnt the child's fingers with matches and then they chained the boy inside a six-foot shipping crate with buckets for water for food for human waste. When the police arrived, the boy had been locked inside for 56 days in the heat of summer. His mother and father were members of the Solar Lodge. This outrage became known as the boy in the box. Some of the adults fled, others faced trial, and there were felony convictions, and there were charges dismissed. Because the members did not look like hippies and often had professional jobs in Los Angeles, the scandal of the boy in the box was not immediately seen to be the story of an occult lodge. It was instead called a commune by the newspapers at least until the trial in October 1969 in Indio, when the occult lodge angle became better known. There were many children kept at the compound, generally kept away from their parents, instructed in dark arts, and spoken to in very severe tones. The Solar Lodge teachers were fond of physical punishment. And also in October 1969, Charles Manson and a dozen members of his murderous family were arrested at Barker Ranch on the west slope of Death Valley's Panamint Mountains. Manson was hiding out after the murders he orchestrated in Los Angeles. He had a strange philosophy. According to past members of the Solar Lodge, he borrowed this desert compound apocalyptic race war idea from the Solar Lodge itself. He was not an official member, but he hung around just enough to get what he wanted. Listen to this from Alex Constantine's 1996 book, Ortis Templis Intelligentis. The group subscribed to a grim, apocalyptic view of the world precipitated by race wars, and the prophecy made a lasting impression on Charles Manson, who passed through the lodge. In the L.A. underworld, the OTO spinoff was known for indulgence in sadomasochism, drug dealing, blood drinking, child molestation, and murder. Like the Manson family, they used drugs, sex, psychodrama, and fear to tear down the mind of the initiate and rebuild it according to the desires of the cult's inner circle. The remains of the Solar Lodge Desert Compound are still out there baking in the sun. The Wyatt Earp House is an interesting stop while traveling through the area, but I would recommend you not spend too much time looking for the remnants of this occult compound. They were not magicians looking for the light of the world. They were evil. You're well aware by now, of course, with all my various business ventures, I'm one of those kind of hands-on, freewheeling, get-it-done, think-outside-of-the-box kind of 
business son of a gun. You know, I'm a wealth creator, Ken. Yeah. I believe that wealth and the quest for wealth are the true drivers of American uh, American freedom. You know, what's, uh, what's freer than uh, being free from financial worry? It's true. And that's the yeah. greatest freedom of it all. So, uh, anyway, um, America's story is also the story about the immigrants. I mean, we're a nation of people from other places. We have always uh, thrived on this, a constant stream of new people and uh, new energy, new ideas, new workers, new consumers. And a lot of them come over here simply to get a, have a chance of getting rich, right? You know that. Sure. So, so my friends in the business world, uh, the hospitality industry, uh, the construction and agriculture and business services, they're really concerned about these migrants. They want to help these people get their shot at the American dream. So we set up a political action committee called Americans for Personal Freedom. We're very proud, too, of our slogan. This is our call to action. Get this. None of us are free until all of us are free marketers. That's our slogan. Offices in San Diego, right above the harbor. And, you know, we're working with legislators and grassroots organizers. And we, we opened a Kickstarter account, you know, to get some public support. Oh, and, yeah, those are popular. Also, uh, we also opened an Indiegogo and a Booster and a YouCaring account. There's, let's see, a fundraiser. What, are there, uh, what other kind of accounts do we have? here. Let's see. What's on the next page? Give Forward. We've got Rally.org. So we'd like you to visit all of them and uh, donate freely because it's still tax deductible, I believe. I don't know what the new tax laws are. For, uh, Have you had any issues with yeah. your nonprofit status? Or uh, no, our nonprofit right has not been challenged unlike the one before. This good, one is good. standing up in court. Superior Court judge said that this one is good. Got a lot of good support here. And, you know, it's sad to us here to see so many people beating up on these poor immigrants, you know, to score cheap political points. And we have the medieval spectacle of little kids in cages. That's disgusting. It's really disgusting to us. You know what else is disgusting to us? What's that? The fact that unemployment is at its lowest point in 50 years. I mean, we're actually having to give pay raises to people. Some of these companies have been forced to offer such socialist palliatives as paid vacations, Ken, child care, pensions. I mean, this stuff's really expensive. And you know what's going to happen? It's going to raise the cost of goods and services, which is going to raise inflation, which is going to destroy the value, liberty, and happiness, including the right to be free from police abuse, the right to be free from racism, from violent criminal gangs, from government regulations on the industry, from bureaucratic overreach and repressive taxes and tariffs. We believe this strongly, Ken. Corporations are people, too. I believe the Supreme Court came out and said that. Corporations are people. So, you know, and, and, and you know, and corporations, you know, like corporations have feelings, Ken, you know. Well, what do you think it did to Apple when the people rejected their HomePod? That's what we're talking about. It's this labeling that is so dehumanizing. I mean, come on, illegal aliens? That's horrible. We need Americans for personal freedom. We're trying to figure out how to turn this horrible phrase on its head. Try to think about it differently. Then, one of the guys on our board, a guy from 20th Century Fox, by the way, they're pushing this new movie, Phoenix Forgotten. It's all about the, the incident you spoke about. It's lights, With right? the lights and the truck driver, the mouth agape, the truck in the lane, all that stuff. And the, yeah, absolutely. So anyway, they did a survey as part of their marketing scheme. And they asked a bunch of Americans, what did they think about aliens? You know, what were their feelings on it? Turns out, 50% of Americans believe that aliens exist. And 
they regularly visit our planet Earth. And a great majority have an overall positive opinion of them. Did you know that? They're not like War of the Worlds or, you know, the insect people from star, you know, Starship Troopers. We have a positive image of them. Right. It's space so brothers and space sisters. Exactly. Well, we've also noticed the great change in the Western world, the decline of organized religion. This decline might sound like a bad thing, but it might be a good thing. What we were thinking about was that there's this deep, untapped well of support for extraterrestrial aliens, right? Yeah. Okay, good. But there's not so much support and interest for regular old human aliens. So we try changing the names, you know, we call them undocumented people or people without papers or whatever. But I was thinking, what could be the next step? What could be the next step instead of just changing their names? And then it hit me. Instead of just changing their names, let's change illegal aliens into actual extraterrestrial aliens, Ken. I got this great plan. It's very, very simple. A little too simple, actually. What we're going to do is an elegant solution. Let, let me show you what our images, image consultants came up with. Okay, here we got this. We're going to put these glasses on them. See, like this. And we're putting these glasses. And then you're going to take your little Star Trek transponder thing here, and we're going to... We're going to put that right on the outside of them. Yeah, it's going to be a little bit, they're not going to be wearing suits. We're going to put them in T-Vex suits, and then we're going to have them do like some robot talk, or you know how aliens talk. You know, they do click languages. This is, a, who is this it's supposed to fool? Ken, it would be a paradigm shift in thought. It, I mean, think about it. You're going to have the conservative people are going to be like, oh, this is great. We're locking up these aliens that are coming to attack us. And then you got the liberal do-gooder types who are going to be like, oh, we got to stop protesting them and not doing these aliens. We have to start make all new signs and everything for them, you know, to protest, tying up the extra, extraterrestrial aliens. And we're going to get the UFO their conspiracy theories are all going to be validated, Ken. It's going to be fantastic. It's a political and psychological win. It's going to get all these people together, and it's going to get a little bit of safety and peace of mind for these, for these migrants. And as a bonus, the national peacekeeping and human warehousing industries could keep using their black sites in suburban office parks because they'll be housing extraterrestrials, not immigrants. This is honestly... Yeah, no. The most Listen, repellent thing you have ever done. This is fantastic. The people are protected. They still get seven fifty a day per teeth. They still get ten grand a week for the food rent cage. How does this There's change? There's a lot of money there. Kim. How does this change the humanitarian crisis and the mistreatment of human beings? Uh, well, it's because who's going to fall for this, Brendan? Well, uh, I think uh, a lot of people are going to fall. Hey, look, Ken. You look. You work in the liberal media establishment. You know how this stuff works. You know how television works. It's going to work. There's going to be a final outcome to this, which is absolutely fantastic. After all the brouhaha dies down and everybody goes home and goes to sleep and looks at their Facebook stream and they start thinking about something else, we've got lots of job opportunities for these wonderful newcomers, Ken, and they're going to work hard. They're going to build our houses. They're going to grow our food. They're going to clean up our messes. Then they're going to pay their taxes. They're going to contribute to communities, and with the help of our organization, we're going to change them one more time into full-blown, 100% wave the flag and pound a beer American citizens. And then they, too, can proudly look with fear and mistrust upon whatever new group of migrants.
was breaking down again out here in the middle of nowhere. Out of her window, she could see coyotes. But these weren't normal coyotes. You don't usually spot something like that on social media, but it was the artist John Lurie's account on Twitter, and he was trying to get an impromptu story going the other night. I managed to add a line, which was, There was the Circle K sign, red plastic glowing in the miserable September night. The only way out of this was through those greasy glass doors. And then it was over. Nobody else was taking part, so John Lurie pulled the plug. And now we'll never know what happened when she got to the Circle K. Did the abnormal coyotes follow her inside? The parts of life that are best, the parts that are worthwhile, well, they are often fleeting. They are fleeting and they wither away when you try to capture them, try to save them, try to send them around on the computer, try to turn them into books or music or religion or art. But we keep trying. The few, the proud, etc. Halloween's summer's end to the old Celtic societies was the time of year when the veil was thin between the worlds, a time of early twilight and mist and quiet. But in our present day, it's rubber masks and rubber limbs painted bloody red in sweatshop factories in China. Sold in fluorescent lit empty retail space briefly occupied by the Halloween stores. Nothing disappoints like Halloween. Christmas and Thanksgiving are home celebrations mostly, so you are free to try to show some dignity, have some dignity. But Halloween is a community holiday interpreted by anyone with a front yard and a credit card, and so there is no escaping the inflatable rubber skeletons, the inflatable rubber pumpkins, the horror movie costumes, the plastic and styrofoam molded into bones and decapitated babies. Well, if you don't want to suffer all that, suffer through all that, try going camping on Halloween weekend. Halloween night if you can. Go somewhere far away with no activities beyond some drinks around the fire. An evening walk on a dark trail. Listen to the animals, the strange sounds from the brush and the wash and the creek. If you can find a place with water around here free-flowing water, bathtub, ring, reservoirs do not count. That water is unholy. And look, if all else fails, we're going to try to fake it down in the campfire circle in Palm Springs, scary campfire stories and cocktails under the night sky down at the Ace Hotel on October 31, 7 p.m. I mean, if you can't go camping can't set yourself up in a stone cottage in Ireland, maybe an old house on Loch Ness. This is Desert Oracle Radio. Good night from the voice of the desert. <laughs>